welcome along to the COVID Care Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline West, and on this podcast, I speak with those who accessed care services and who provide care services during lockdown to a variety of vulnerable people. This podcast is a part of the Tortoise Shack Network, and if you wish to support the work that the Shack does, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. You can also find the podcast on Twitter at the hashtag COVID Care Podcast. Today, we are exploring the impact of COVID lockdown on the service provision in the area of domestic violence. I'm joined by Emma Reedy, the CEO of Evenest Domestic Abuse Services, and Andrea McDermott, social care team leader from Men's Aid, to discuss how they experienced lockdown in their services. How are you both keeping today? We're good, thank you. I'm good, thank you. Good, no, I'm delighted to have you here because this is obviously an area that did receive a little bit of media attention during lockdown, but obviously there's a, a bigger conversation to, to be had and, and to be inclusive, I suppose, of Ben's experiences, Andrea, from, from your perspective as well. So what I might do is I might get you to give me a brief outline of the kind of service that you run and the kind of demographics that you serve. Um, and I might start with you for that one. Thanks, Caroline, and thanks for having us. Um, Evenus is a domestic abuse support service uh, that provides support to women and children um, who are victims and survivors of domestic abuse. Uh, we provide refuge accommodation, um, a 24-hour helpline, court preparation and accompaniment service, a drop-in service and an outreach community support service. Um, so all in all, we are based from the, the Dublin um, area. We serve the Dublin and Greater Dublin area, but because of the limitations that exist um, regarding refuge places uh, for, for women and children around the country, we typically take women um, all over Ireland um, as a need arises. Um, in addition to the services we provide, we also um, provide uh, education and uh, awareness raising. And a big part and a component of what we do is uh, raising awareness um, to try and look at what early prevention ultimately looks like uh, from a community um, point of view and perspective. In terms of the demographics, um, I think that, you know, Andrea can probably, you know, touch on this in her own regards that, you know, from our point of view, um, you know, women's and, and girls and, and boys experiencing domestic violence starts from, um, you know, in retro, um, you know, it, it's um, it's an early experience, and um, an early traumatic experience uh, for the adults that we provide support to. And um, it starts, you know, just before, you know, they they turn eighteen years of age, and it continues right through. And um, we would have roughly um, a thirty percent split between our 18 um, to 25 demographic and up and uh, right up until our mid 40 demographic and um, people in the um, age range of 65 years plus would be typically our, our lowest um, demographic that we have access or reach to and that'd be about five or six percent. So that gives maybe a flavour that domestic abuse cuts through all aspects um, of community and society life and therefore has an impact we feel on anyone who's who's in the, at the receiving end of it. Absolutely, from womb to tomb, as you said there, and, and a lifelong experience. Um, and then Andrea, yourself? Yeah, so I would totally agree with Emma as well, you know, that it is from, from womb to tomb, literally. Um, so we are the only dedicated support service for men and their children who are experiencing domestic violence in Ireland. 
Um, we have court accompaniment, we have our national helpline, um, we have outreach clinics, we have um, in Dublin, Monaghan, Cavan, Mead and Loud. At the moment, just due to funding restrictions, our services have been directed into the, the northeast country. Um, but our helpline is national helpline. Um, we have a, a room in Dauphin House in Dublin every Tuesday where we see men experiencing domestic abuse coming in and we help them with paperwork, um, whether it's for applying for protection or safety orders so that they can remain in their homes. Because there are no refuges or safe beds for men, we depend a lot on the, the court support um, and the guardie. Um, we also facilitate parenting while separated courses. Um, we do training and awareness. A lot of our work is around awareness. Um, you know, to we know that one in seven men in Ireland will experience domestic violence at some stage, um, and that one in three domestic violence survivors will be a man. Um, yet only five percent of men will ever report abuse. So that's ninety-five percent of men won't talk about it. So really, we want to get rid of the stigma around um, domestic violence and men. It's okay to come forward. There is support there for them. We have, um, because of lockdown now, we have emergency counselling on the phone. So in our counties, we have, um, in the northeast of the country, we have six face-to-face counselling sessions that can go up to eight, depending um, on the person and what they need. Um, but we do uh, um, emergency counselling on the phone all around the country. So we have um, safety planning, care planning. You know, when men contact us, they don't know where to start. It, they, they might have, like women, it might have taken them, you know, 60 times to pick up that phone and then eventually make that call. Um, the demographic as well, we, we have young guys of 18, right up to, to about 80 and 90. We've had 90-year-old contacts as well. Um, we talk to men who are experiencing domestic violence from um, their partners, or sometimes from uh, older guys who ring when they have adult children returning to the home and they find themselves in a situation where they're being abused by their, their adult children. We did notice with um, intimate partner violence that the demographic was in, a, in an age range of around 40, I think it was, to 55, seemed to be the bigger group of men contacting. And I don't have statistics on this, but, I'm, but, but from talking to the men, what I think is that because we don't have safe beds and we don't have refuge, Men wanted to um, wait until their children were a certain age before they did anything about it. So by that age, their children were probably 18, 19, 20, and they felt they could do something about the, the, the relationship and the violence that's in the home. Um, we have, through lockdown, we've had a 30% increase in the contacts to our helpline. And we've had men contacting us because they... I suppose at one stage where they had an option of maybe going to a friend's house where there was domestic violence because there's no refuge, they might have gone into a friend's home or a, a parent's home. And during lockdown, they didn't have that because of social distancing. So we were getting a lot of calls from men who were calling us from their cars. You know, as with women, they were trapped in the home with their abuser um, 24 hours a day, you know. So it's the, they were they end up going up and sleeping in their cars. They were contacting us from the local park. They were sleeping rough. Um, to get away from the abuse and then they were going back home. So um, yeah, that's kind of a flavour of what we do with counselling, with um, court accompaniment, we have um, outreach clinics, we have phone service where we can talk to even a listening ear. Sometimes that first contact, you know, the listening ear to, to say this is what's happening to me and then building up a relationship so that then they feel they can come in and talk to us, that there is something they can do about what's happening to them. 
Um, we also do training in Temple Mall with the Gardaí now so that they can get an understanding from a male perspective about what happens when a man has been abused in the home and why they don't come forward. Um, and we have our training academy, which is getting set. We're, we're starting up now, actually, we're trying to start up through COVID, which is a bit difficult. But um, we will be going into schools, colleges, um, the judiciary, um, solicitors, everybody, everybody. There needs to be more awareness out there about domestic violence in general um, and about male domestic violence. We'll definitely pull that apart throughout the podcast. But I see there from both of you that, you know, you're running such a variety of services and you're, you know, providing, I suppose, maybe meeting people where they are on a variety of levels, whether it's people who can only phone or people who have the ability to get into refuge or media in the community. So going back then, and and again, you see from all the different ages as well that, that, you know, this isn't just a particular kind of demographic, which is what we might see in the media sometimes that, you know, it's it's only you know the the images that accompany most media depictions of domestic violence can generally be very singularly focused. But we'll we'll get into yeah. that as well throughout the podcast. But take me back then to the start of lockdown for both of you. So we, it was a very precarious time. We didn't really know what was going to happen. You know the the wasn't quite decided. It was a pa- pandemic for a while. It was just kind of bubbling on the surface, and then all of a sudden everything seemed to happen quite quickly. It was you know it's a pandemic. We were being locked down, but we didn't know how long we were being locked down for. And obviously, you know, when when you're providing services of such a crisis nature, you know, a little bit of certainty behind the scenes can help, you know, with, with service provision and planning. So how did you prepare for that initial stage of lockdown when we knew we were going into lockdown? Um, you know, how, what measures did you put in place to keep the services running? Um, well, we got news, obviously, like the rest of the country, um, when that initial news conference came and we found the schools were closing. And um, I remember we happened to be at a meeting evenings with other domestic violence providers and we were on our way into the homeless executive. And it, it was a real sense in that moment that, you know, we have something really big to contend with um, on our hands. And... I think we didn't really even at that realise just the, the sheer the, the, the sheer um, task ahead of all of us in relation to that. Um, we had very early experience of um, cases um, where people were symptomatic um, or queried COVID positive. Um, I believe we were one of the first residential services to, to get um, a case of self-isolation. So that prompted us to take from the very first week in March the issue really seriously. Um, almost before that that press conference, we begun a contingency kind of framework that we would, you know, enact um, if and, and when we needed to, looking at a very measured response. We did know um, and realise it was going to bring real logistical issues because um, we know that the issue of domestic violence is such a hidden issue. It's such an underreported issue. And I think that where we realised that the lockdown was going to signal people staying in their homes and having to restrict their movements, we feared the worst. We, we feared that for a lot of our clients that their reality was going to be just so compounded by the fact that they didn't have somewhere to access um, and it wasn't going to be made simple for them in order to do that. So much of our approach, you know, centred on you know, um, creating initiatives with local pharmacies or GPs, getting code words out there that for people that were able to leave the home for even a minute and for something that related to something that was needed within the home, 
that they would have a way out. Um, we had to reduce our occupancy concerning refuge. So what that had us do really quickly um, was um, look at acquiring another unit. Um, and we got 14 units um, uh, from a partnership we went into with the YWCA. But in addition to that, we sourced Airbnb. And we sourced private rented where we could continue our key working support. And then we built in a framework of support whereby we could continue our community and outreach and knowing full well that our helpline would take a huge burden. And it did over the six months of lockdown from the beginning of March until the end of August, we saw a colossal 125% increase in our helpline calls on average over those six months. So it spoke to us that where we had huge lulls in our helpline, and um, that there were intense and very intense periods of, of real, you know, um, real action coming through where people were grabbing those moments and utilizing them as best as they could. But there was that always that concern that we weren't seeing all that need, clearly needed support. And that was the big focus for us, that we knew that if we didn't do what we could as an agile team and um, looking outside of what we ordinarily would have done, that we saw lives being lost to this pandemic and um, relating to experiences of domestic violence escalating the home. So that just gives a snapshot, I think, of, of where Evers came and how we approached it. And then, Andrea, for yourself, obviously, you, you don't have refuge services yeah. yet, um, hopefully yeah. in, the, in the future. But w- would that have been a similar experience? Was there ever that consideration that you wouldn't operate your service during lockdown? Um, well, our helpline would obviously be was going to be during lockdown. There was no change to our helpline. What happened was we started to work remotely, um, and because we're such a small team, we have like three part-time counsellors on our phones. We have me working full time, and we have one outreach worker, and that's for the northeast of the country. It was at one stage for the whole country, but we're just too tiny, um, so we had to stop our face-to-face. Um, you know, our, our call to compliment and our face-to-face. Um, services because of COVID. Um, our helpline, you know, as, as I said, it was 30% on average and then 100% on some days as well, you know, depending on the day. We had um, we had to work more closely with the Gardaí as well because when men were contacting us, you know, around looking for protection and safety orders because we weren't able to go into the court with the guy, you know, here in, in the northeast of the country or in Dublin, you know, so we were talking to the Gardaí around what they could do if a man is contacting us and saying he's, you know, because he's trapped in the home with his his partner and he needed to get his order in place. Um, it happened so fast for us as well. Like we, we got the call and, and we were to come that day and it was like, oh my God, like, you know, what do we do here? So we were rushing to get our, our, our stuff working remotely from home to get our helpline and everybody set up so that we could continue what services we could. What it did highlight was the absolute need for safe beds for men in Ireland. Um, it really did when men were trapped in the home. And, and as I said, they were contacting us from you know, sleeping rough or sleeping in their cars. So it certainly highlighted something that we need going down the line. Men, as I said before, you know, probably went to a friend's house. They didn't have that option. So it just highlighted how many men in this country are in need of safe beds um, for themselves and for their children. Um, we saw an awful, a huge rise in alcohol consumption as well. So we were getting a lot of the calls of, you know, um, everything kicked off last night. There was more alcohol after being drank. You know, we're all stuck in the same house together. You know, I don't know what to do because the violence is escalating. I'm concerned for my children. 
Um, we did see at the latter end of it where um, the new rent supplement payment had come into, a, into effect where now um, you're not means tested. So it's in some way that's um, something that men can do if they're in suffer from domestic violence. They can now look for the, the rent supplement scheme where they can, we would be um, able to, in the northeast of the country, we can refer men for that service, but obviously not in the rest of the country. So we're, we're advising men to go and talk to their local homeless officer to talk to the, the social welfare you know, so it's about getting men into somewhere safe, men and their children into somewhere safe when, when not. Did. And as we can see, we're probably going to go into lockdown again. Um, so we certainly will be more prepared around our, our, the rent scheme and such because literally there is nowhere for them to go. You know, we don't want men sleeping out in the streets, you know, so, so it certainly highlighted that for us. But our preparation was mostly around keeping our helpline going so that there was somebody to talk to, um, as I said, because our face-to-face had to stop. This is something we're going to have to look at down the line as well. Like if we go into complete lockdown again, I know the court stuff and house stayed open for emergency services and for um, protection and safety orders and such barring and such orders. So that would be kept open. So it's amazing. I suppose we were kind of shocked by it. Well, on the day we were told, like this is it. Now you're, you know, you have to go home and work from home. So yeah, so we certainly will learn from it. Both of you have mentioned your helplines there. Do you, and obviously they're quite busy, uh, you know, at, at the best at times. Do you think that when the lockdown was immediately announced, did you see a massive spike straight away from people who were concerned about what lockdown was going to look like for them? Or was it was it a gradual trickle? Like you've both said that people have, you know, they're calling from their cars or they're calling, you know, if they went out to the chemist, if they, if they were able to escape the house for a few minutes. Um, were there particular... Was there a rush at the start or did it kind of escalate throughout the lockdown? Uh, I think our experience was, uh, Caroline, we had a very, very busy, I remember the first weekend, it was incredibly, insanely busy. Um, and we saw that intensity um, and it almost was that panic that reached women uh, that were able to call and, and access the support. And then there were periods of eerie quiet and we were really concerned when we saw that happen because we knew it was ordinarily a very busy helpline. So those periods are abnormal and it really did emphasise to us that, you know, what was coming through alongside in the community work, which was a lot of safety planning we were doing with clients and all stemmed around the fact that I don't think I'm going to be able to call you now. And if I do, it's going to be with grabbing an opportunity um, and that was a real, real fear for people. And so I do know, though, from being very, you know, very well engaged with other me- member organisations around the country, that quiet continued right through the lockdown, um, depending on the, the rural experience and and other, you know, things that, that were lacking by way of infrastructure. Um, but again, we very much experienced both the busy and the intensive and then the quiet. And for a lot of yeah. people, if you're in jobs, sometimes when the phone isn't ringing, you're happy. You know, it's less work to do. And, and yeah. But obviously, yeah. in this situation, if it's a quiet helpline, the, the end result of that is danger and, and, you know, incredibly difficult living conditions at home. Yeah, we, we would have experienced the same. And um, we would have had where there was really, really high levels of calls coming in. It's like, a, you know, the really, really busy time. We got a lot more email. So men were contacting us through email because they didn't have a chance. Sometimes we, in the morning when you log on, there'd be emails there coming in at 2 and 3 and 4 in the morning when they felt they had a chance to email and um, asking us not to call them or, you know, just looking for some support that way. 
So we would have got a lot more of that. Um, and and like, you know, like Emma there, you know, we had like the days when we just couldn't answer every call. Um, at every stage, there was two of us on the call, on the helpline, you know, uh, every day. And we just couldn't capture every single call. Um, so anybody who left a message for a callback would certainly get a callback. But a lot of times the message was, oh, please don't call me back. Just, you know, um, I, I'll call you back when I get a chance again. So when men emailed, we would email back and say, if you get five minutes, if you manage to get out to the shop, if there's a safe time that I can call you, you know, let me know. And, and we would call them at that safe time. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was it was just it was horrendous to see, you know. You mentioned it there, but the you know the emails. I think there was other ways that you know we managed to you know. I think it's talking about our agility, you know, to respond, and where you know helplines were indeed an important focus. It was about everything else that we could do in in terms of capturing where or how we found people or experienced people um, within their experiences. So. Social media, I'm, I'm sure, because I've seen Men's Aid very visible as, as as I have with other services, social media became really, really important because we were trying to reinforce and reassure that we are here, we remain here, and that there are ways that you can tap into us, whether it's DMs, whether it's live chat, instant messenger, email, text. And I think that was profoundly important that services were able to look at social media in that way to try and just reach more people you know through through their experiences of domestic abuse and it, it was lovely to see i think the hashtag that you guys were using was um still here yeah. which is such a lovely message of you know we we're not going away you know we're still going to be yeah. here during that difficult time so um that's lovely but again with the media aspect you know, I'm a massive supporter of social media because I, I think that, you know, we can tell uh, different stories and we can get through to different people and on different levels and in ways that that works for them. But the regular media, there was a lot of attention given to domestic violence during, I suppose, maybe the early start of lockdown. You know, I saw a good few media articles. I didn't see that much about domestic violence experiences for men um, during lockdown. Do you think, and, and we don't generally see this, you know, and, and I think that's a very, domestic violence is a very hidden experience anyway, but for men it's doubly hidden in a way because of, you know, oh, that doesn't happen to men or, you know, and, and men stay quiet because there's stigma and shame and, and those kind of things. So do you think that that double silence really impacted men during lockdown? Yeah, I, I do. And I do think that we need to talk more about it. And I do think we need to have more media coverage on, on men who experience domestic violence so that more men will come forward. And the more men who come forward, the more we're able to support them and we can grow the service and we can help men everywhere. Because, the, if, you know, there is that shame and that stigma still attached to men, you know, who experience domestic violence. And, you know, if a man talks, for instance, if he goes to his local guard station and the first response he gets is not a good one and it's, you know, well, where you should go home and start he is never going to go back again you know men don't sit in, in you know have a drink with their friends and talk about what's happening to them at home either you know we need men and boys to be able to talk out about their experiences you know and talk about what's happening to them in the homes it's, it's okay to talk about it it's okay there is support there there is help there you know and it shouldn't be hidden because it's not what they're doing they're, they have no shame in this so it shouldn't be hidden you know they're not doing anything wrong and, and it's okay to come and look for support we work with men from, from you know, every ethnicity. We work with men with every job. We have Gardaí who contact us looking for support because they're ashamed and they don't know who to talk to about what's happening to them. You know, we have 
um, prison officers, we you know, homeless guys, we've, it, it doesn't make any difference. It's happening to men all across the country. You know, as I said, one in three, you know, will be uh, victims of domestic abuse will be a man. So, you know, we need to, to have more awareness. We need to have more immediate attention on it and let men know that it is okay to seek support. You know, we need to also talk in the schools about healthy relationships, what is okay and what's not okay. You know, I know years ago we were always told, you know, girls, boys don't hit girls, but nobody should be hitting anybody. You know, it shouldn't be a, you know, like that at all. It just should be, everybody should be respectful of each other and they shouldn't be hitting at all. Mm -hmm. um, we need to get into those schools, get into the colleges, you know, do more education, more training, more awareness, you know, so that men do know that it's okay to come forward. Uh, but those images there on, you know, in in the media, they exclude men a lot of the time because the images are generally a man's fist being balled up and a woman on the floor and, you know, she's holding her face or something. And this is like yeah. the predominant image. But Emma, I'm sure you have some feelings about that because domestic violence isn't just actual physical violence. And I think yeah. those images are really harmful in concealing the varied nature of, of what domestic abuse actually is. Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, in general, I, I look back over the media coverage with, you know, some level of gratitude. But I think that what often finds and what brings um, our focus to, to our area of work um, results after a tragedy. And I think that we were unfortunate enough to experience two, you know, female fatalities due to domestic violence during the lockdown. And you know, experiences that stem beyond Ireland where we saw, you know, huge rate, in, an increase in femicides. And I think that that's the problem with, in general with social media or news um, is that, you know, we generate interest based on the worst possible scenario happening. Um, and if we were really thinking about how we look at prevention or intervention, it's getting, you know, past, you know, the catastrophic um and thinking about how we get clear, consistent um, messaging out there in relation to how we act early and act consistently and act responsibly um, regarding domestic violence and including our by bystanding uh, where it concerns domestic violence. But you're right, Caroline, often so much of the very visual, very um, provocative images that we see in the media relates to a very, very, very stern uh, very dramatic but very violent experience and, and by and large that is an experience from people that we come into contact with and we offer support to but by no way represents um, the majority's experience of domestic violence and how subtle it is and how nuanced it becomes uh, but also how it builds and how gradual it is and if we're truly getting to the point at which whereby we offer support at the right and opportune moment, it gets to a point where we don't see the violence. You know, it, it becomes, it feels wrong. And um, we, we provide comfort and reassurance that you could talk about what feels wrong in those situations and begin a, a series of interventions that support people in relation to that. So I'd love for the, the imagery to become, you know, to become downgraded, to be more representative of what it is we really see. Um, in our work and to reassure people that they don't have to experience a threshold before they reach out and get that support, that if it feels wrong, is wrong, that your right is to speak openly and in confidence with a provider, specialist to provide that support. 
Yeah, I think some people might experience that. Well, oh, well, he doesn't hit me, so it's not domestic violence. And, you know, or I, I don't have a black eye, which would be the, the very stereotypical image that we might see. But I know, Andrea, for yourself, that for men experiencing um, physical violence might be rarer than other forms of violence. Would that be the case? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, in saying that, we do get a lot of men. I'd say probably around 80% of the men who contact us do um, have physical violence, are experiencing physical violence. Um, the difference being, I suppose, that when men are attacked, they're usually more vulnerable. So they're attacked usually when they're asleep or if they have their back to their, their abuser, you know, that's usually when they're attacked. Men don't talk about the physical violence as much either. Um, they seem to be, when a man contacts me, for instance, and he might say, look, I, I don't know, I'm sure you have bigger cases than mine to, to be dealing with, you know, but I just thought I'd ring anyway, you know, and they'll talk about the constant psychological abuse, the constant put-downs, the constant, you're useless, you're not a good father, you're no good, nobody else will have you, you know, and this daily, every day, you know, and it gets them, I mean, the suicide rates are huge, you know, men contact me saying this to us, that this is their daily, day-to-day living, you know, every time they come home, they just can't do anything right. And then, you know, during the course of the conversation, you know, we might come up about, is there physical violence? And they'll say no. But by the end of the conversation, they're saying, well, she has slapped me a few times or she's thrown stuff at me and, you know, and I did slip my head. And, you know, so they just don't seem to talk about, they seem to accept the violence easier for some reason. Um, and it's the psychological abuse that really, really gets them. They tell me that, you know, and men have actually said to me, you know, I prefer to have the black eye where I can say this is what happened than this constant psychological abuse, you know, or the mental torture. You know, I've, I've worked with guys who, where he sleeps on his landing, he's not allowed into the bedroom, so he doesn't go into the bedrooms, and this is where he sleeps every single night. You know, he's treated like, you know, like, like a dog. He's not allowed to do anything. You know, we have guys who say they go to work, and, and it's exactly the same as with the women. They have to photograph themselves in work to show that they're actually there. You know, they're timed. You know, I had one guy who contacted me because he was timed going to work, and, and this was before the lockdown. When he was coming home, there was road traffic. Um, they were working on the roads, and he had to take another route home, which was going to add ten minutes onto his his drive home. And he was he was absolutely in He didn't know what to do. He was like, "I'm going to be home fifteen minutes later than I should be." You know, I know what's going to happen. You know, and it's not the fifteen minutes that's going to cause it because it would have been something else. You know, it, it would have been you know when he goes in because it's not his fault. It's, it's the perpetrator, whatever they're going through, whatever's happened to them throughout their lives you know, that makes them like this. So if it wasn't the 15 minutes, it was because he wasn't wearing the right clothes or because, you know, he did something else wrong, you know, but he was devastated. He didn't know what to do because he knew he was going to be 15 minutes late getting home, you know. So there's so much more abuse that goes on beyond the physical, even though the physical does happen. And for men, as I said, they just don't seem to talk about it. They're very concerned about false allegations as well. You know, most of the men who contact, you know, they tell us, if I leave, I know that what's going to happen is she's going to make false allegations. She's already told me this is what she's going to do. You know, she's she's going to tell everybody that I abused her. Or she's going to tell everybody I hurt the kids. Or, you know, she's going to contact two so I can't see the children or the courts, you know. So, so there's many other ways of abusing men and keeping them where, you know, where there's where the person wants them, where they're abusing them. That psychological abuse is maybe beginning to be a little bit more recognised by our guardie and, and court services, especially with some um, recent enough legislation that's come in. But you've both kind of referenced there the, the court process. And um, Emma, would you mind explaining to people who might have um, that knowledge what, the difference between the protection orders and safety orders and barring orders that people have access to um, you, you know, to try and support them and how psychological abuse 
is recognized within those orders? Yeah, like we experienced a really important um, change to the legislation um, under the Domestic Violence Act, and that was for the inclusion of psychological coercive control, um, meaning for the first time it was going to be considered a, a crime um, by, by denoting it under the legislation. Um, so that really identifies that, you know, where a lot of our clients uh, vote for even if men's aid and fraud or services around the country, where they're going in following an incident or incident of domestic abuse, um, they have the right under that to either seek interim emergency um, orders um, and then for that period uh, have the benefit of that order in place until they have and can go to court for a hearing. And that would be more associated with the safety and the barring order piece um, and considered for that reason more permanent in nature. Um, but, you know, it's really important that, you know, the legislation covers from the point of view of physical, sexual, financial emotional, psychological and, and coercive control in that. And coercive control is a really interesting one because and one we've campaigned for a long number of years to have included because often experiences of domestic abuse um, to a person experiencing it sometimes aren't tangible. You know, it, it looks at a pattern of things that are happening in the relationship within the home that can make you feel that you're losing your mind, that you're at the centre of all the wrongdoing that's happening in the relationship and um, between your parental relationships with your children, in your relationship with your significant other. And coercive control really gets to the heart of that, where it looks at things happening in the home that, you know, might be acted out, that might have put at the centre of it, someone creating scenarios to make someone feel like they are the person in the wrong um, and that they um, are... Um, at, at, the, at the heart of it, the cause or the, the issue in their own right. So what we've been able to do with that kind of development is map out more successfully for people that have a series of issues um, unfolding within the relationship, being able to document that. So where, in, for instance, um, you know, you might be accused of having a mental illness um, and you might be accused for that reason of being fit to and take care of your children, that it's really about being able to document how that person might be making the situation the case that you believe that or that other people might believe that. So that might be calling doctors on that person's behalf, trying to kind of project that that person isn't getting out of bed, isn't in fact taking care of the children, isn't making meals, isn't doing the shopping. So building a picture in relation to that, but nonetheless having something you can map out that contests that. And that's really important where it comes to the very heart of domestic abuse, where it relates to that person trying to elicit maximum control or influence over that person. And the courts being aware that domestic abuse doesn't fall under such strict criteria, which is he slapped me or he punched me. And it falls much more, you know, beyond that, which includes what builds up to that period and where maybe a first instance of uh, physical abuse happens and everything behind that that would have taken place. And how during the lockdown then, how did the clients access court services? Were the courts up and running? I'm assuming that there was, you know, social distance and measures in place or did they completely shut down? The courts were open for emergency orders, such as interim barring orders and um, emergency barring orders and uh, protection orders. Um, now I think we can actually go online and they can apply for the emergency orders online. 
And um, so if there is another lockdown, it will be an easier. The, the biggest issue was getting into the court in order to apply for these orders. So that would have been a, a bigger issue than actually um, being able to apply for them. Because when you're being watched 24 hours a day, you know, it's not easy then to go in and apply for this order. So um, so I think the going, being able to go online is, is, is much a much better and safer way for men and women to apply for these orders now. Um, should we go into another lockdown? It's finding the time when they're, you know, to get out of the house and to do this. So I imagine the courts are actually quieter um, because people couldn't access them, even though the emergency services, the emergency orders were still in place and you could go in for that. Um, but our family law issues weren't. Um, we would have seen a lot of um, men who, would, who weren't allowed to have access to their children, um, some for genuine reasons because of COVID-19, and then somewhere it was used as an excuse. Um, even though the minister, Charlie Flanagan at the time, did say that COVID-19 was not to be used as um, a, a reason to stop somebody from access to their children, the court ordered access was still to go ahead. Um, where, you're, where your partner is an abuser, this was an opportunity for them to, to use that um, to their advantage, you know. And so we had some men who did not see their children for, for months at a time, um, but they didn't have the option of going into court and, you know, and uh, reporting breaches of that order. So um, but for the emergency orders and for keeping people safe, that was still there if they were able to get into the court to, to access that. Um, I think that the uh, court system, um, you know, identified some real inadequacies in how they how they operate and I think that was a good thing to come from the COVID pandemic and um, insofar as that you know our, our court service may not be fit for purpose you know the physical infrastructure don't accommodate um, families you know uh, going through um, domestic violence um, or coming from very really recent trauma and um, so we've been very delighted we've been delighted to, um, having pursued the, um, the virtual courts to see that being something that in Dublin metropolitan region is being trialled at the moment, uh, where you know from a service like ours, women can attend court and give evidence, and that can be all done from the safety of a space um, that won't be a risk to them. I think in general the issue with Andrea would have touched on um, maintenance and access were really really problematic for us, and um, because it was used as a further mechanism to control or abuse the situation. But we saw, I suppose, families go into poverty because they couldn't um, get access to payments and they obviously couldn't get access to their children. And so it presented really, you know, big fundamental issues. And I think that by virtue of the courts now looking at that, um, they recognise the need for 6,000 odd applications that people have to go through that application process again, which leaves, I, I would imagine, a lot of people feeling like they have a very uphill struggle ahead of the, themselves in relation to how they go about that. You've both really touched on the idea of domestic violence being such a hidden part of our society, but yet so completely widespread given the services that you're both operating and you know, reaching people on, on so many different levels. Um, and if we look at, for, for men, it, it's even more hidden. But for children, it seems to be completely hidden. And, you know, it's a hard thing to acknowledge that a lot of children are in these situations because they can be very powerless. And, you know, like trying to get them connected to the right services and, and to acknowledge that the mental health aspect of, of you know, witnessing domestic violence. So the children don't necessarily need to be 
quote unquote a victim as such, like as in a direct victim, but they are still a victim because they're witnessing it and they're living in these unsafe conditions. So how did the lockdown impact children in these situations? And I'm sure that, you know, we're we're only going to ever see, we're only going to touch the surface of that at the moment. And it's going to take a while for the, for the impacts of lockdown to really kind of start showing and coming out and we can start addressing them. But were there any main themes that, that, that you both saw in your services in relation to children? And the biggest one for us concerning our refuge was we just simply didn't see children, um, you know, coming into refuge. And I think it was a, a strategy that mams tried to, um, you know, maintain um, normality as much as possible during the, the, the worst of the lockdown. Um, so they maintained their position at home and they struggled to survive through. And then as soon as we saw the lifting of the restrictions, we saw bigger families, more children access our accommodation. Um, and the same really for our kind of our community and an outreach side of things. We saw, um, you know, women really trying to just hold their situations as best they could. And and then where we saw some lifting, we saw that the needs of children come really through in that. I think you're right, Caroline, though, the, you know, children are, are very much the hidden casualties in this pandemic. And I think that from the point of view of where we go, um, and how we recover um, over the next weeks, months ahead. We really do have to consider, you know, the experiences and the trauma that children have experienced in the home because they, we haven't had as much eyes or connection or communication with them. So we are only really tapping into the direct first-hand experiences of children now as we see more people um, having in, reinstilled reassurance and faith that our services aren't going to make them sick um, and aren't going to um, cause them, you know, further problems. And um, so that we, we'll see really and truly, you know, children getting their, their needs first and foremost um, met. But it, I think it's going to be a long process. And I think we're going to hear quite understandably some, some really difficult things um, to come firsthand from children um, because they are often the, the more silenced in this situation when we talk about women, when we talk about men. Uh, the children are brought along in these processes and they're not considered or necessarily centre stage um, and that tends to be a, a big issue I think we come up against. Absolutely, absolutely and you know for for yourself at least there is refuge as an option for women bringing their children in but Andrea you're saying that that's not an option for men trying to bring their children in because there are no refuge beds for men in the country so how did the children fare in those situations? Yeah, and we don't work directly with children um, simply because we don't have refuge and we don't have safe beds. So we don't work directly with children. But what we have, what was coming across to us was um, after um, restrictions started to lift, we did have more men contact us looking for counselling services for children. Um, I mean, the trauma that children go to when they're witnessing abuse in the home is horrendous, you know, and, and it's the cycle as well, you know, and it's needing to break that cycle, you know, Sometimes coming from, we know, you know, coming from a home where there's domestic abuse, children will likely, you know, end up in a domestic abuse situation. They could become an abuser or, or become a victim of domestic abuse, you know, and it's trying to end that cycle as well. We would have men contacting us looking for, as I said, services for their children, counselling services. They feel the children have, have gone through more trauma. Um, so what we do is we refer, um, we refer to Tusla, we refer to services in their area, the family supports their the local services 
um, because as I said, our helpline is national. So it could be somebody in Cork where we have no reach for Cork or Galway or, or anywhere. So we find a service in their area that can support them and their children. Um, and that's and that's all we could do at that stage. I do believe, as Emma said, you know, coming out of this, there's going to be horrendous, um, you know, stories from coming from children and, and mental health issues with children because even if the violence or the abuse is not directed at the child, they are still um, being abused because they're witnessing what's happening to their parents in the house. So, so there's going to be a lot of repercussions because of this lockdown with regards to children. It's an awful conversation to have to have that we don't like to see anyone as victims of this, but especially children where there is, they can't grab their stuff in it and run to a refuge in the middle of the night. So that sense of powerlessness must be just really you know really prevalent so talking about minister for children um and that aspect you know like lockdown really started when we were getting a new government in and i think we were a good 100 odd days really or give or take without a proper government and of course then domestic violence services you know you're quite used to lobbying government ministers for supports and and to try and get the the services that we need up, up and running and stuff but how you know and and I suppose domestic violence is kind of lumped in with a few categories that perhaps it shouldn't be when we come to the the government side of things. So how did that lack of a minister with direct responsibility, um, you know, for domestic violence transpire during lockdown? And, and the effect of like welcoming on a new minister and building up that new relationship in the middle of a pandemic when domestic violence is such a thing that needs to be addressed on quite an urgent basis. Yeah, it, it was difficult. Um we fall under the remit of children and family um, and our co-founder is TUSA um, and from the point of view of looking at a contingency plan that required a response um, and ring fence budget to support us in any of our, our programme um, you know, developments, uh, we didn't have that. We had to negotiate every single, every, every sort of programme or intervention we brought in on stream we had to directly negotiate that. And I think that still remains, I suppose, a troublesome aspect for us is that we're the only sector that has not been able to secure or ring fence our recovery budget. Um, and the one thing that we've identified for all services uh, working with men, women and children concerning domestic violence is that the infrastructure was lacking. And uh, with recovery on all our minds and with, as Andrea touched on, a, a lockdown and um, maybe on the horizon, uh, we really need to use this as an opportunity where we endorse uh, ministers to take on a real commitment to adequately fund our sector, but also to look at where we can take key learnings from our first experience of the lockdown and how we can ensure that come what may, a, a second lockdown, that we have the provisions and the support and the resourcing to make sure that we you know, provide women, and um, men and children all the resources and the support that they need. Um, and at the moment, Minister Gorman and Minister McEntee are between, um, I suppose, um, a negotiation in relation to what aspects of our work will fall where. Um, so we're asking for prioritisation regarding the audits that they have um, committed to, and um, independence, which would be really important for us, and um, to ensure that you know victims and survivors of domestic violence get a real voice and representation in what they would like services to look like uh, going forward. And I hope that whatever minister we stay with, um, that we get that commitment from them. Do you think, Andrea, on that, that it would be best to have a specific just minister for domestic violence? 
Um, yeah, we, we too are um, our funders, our main funders are two solicitor room with child and, and family support there as well. And we do get a small amount of funding from the Department of Justice um, to run our outreach clinic in Dublin. But I do think that we certainly in the men's services need a huge injection of funding, you know, in order to, to support men and their children, you know, with what's coming down the line. If we've learned anything at all, we've learned that, you know, men and, and their children and women, obviously, you know, are, are living in dangerous situations in their homes. And we, we need to make sure that, that they're supported and that they get every everything that they need. And whether it's Helen McAtee or whoever, you know, if it comes in, we need to get that funding and we need to get that support. And we need to prioritise domestic violence. We're talking about saving lives, you know, um, it, we really need to have that those supports in place, especially for what's coming down the road. We need to have safe beds and, and especially for children. I mean, children like need to have support in place. We need to do mm. a lot better than what we're doing at the moment to support children of, of domestic violence and, and domestic abuse. And children are grown up in houses where even school, you know, they couldn't get to school. They were literally trapped as were the women and the men. You know, they were just as trapped in the homes and seeing what was going on. So the trauma. Mm. So we do need to have whoever comes on board, you know, uh, putting more funding into domestic violence services for everybody. I think also um, as a social and non-profit, um, which many of our organisations are, we've grown from grassroots. Um, so I think it's really, really time for the, the government to identify that it has to be a cohesive partnered approach that they take and a commitment that they take to victims um, of abuse um, to provide that, you know, not, you know, not going on any further are, or will social non-profits be expected to hold the, the burden that they're holding at the moment. So I would love to see that with the second national strategy. Yeah. That's to be something that we, we really consider quite carefully to ensure that we just pave the way and um, to meet our obligations under Istanbul to ensure that we provide all victims with the, the necessary minimum that they deserve in their experience and recovery from domestic and going forward then, like we've mentioned there, we may or may not be in another lockdown, um, even by the time this comes out, who knows at this stage. But we are, we're also going into Christmas time in, in a couple of weeks, and Christmas can be extremely difficult of, of a situation for those who are experiencing domestic violence, and um, sometimes refuge admissions drop because people just try and, and, and kind of hold it together for the sake of the kids and, and you know, to have a quote-unquote normal experience, and then you know, um, I think the stats for filing for a divorce also, you know, um, really increase around January time once Christmas is out of the way. But, you know, it's very unusual. We've never had a lockdown and Christmas in the, in the same breath in, in Ireland. So going forward, then, how are we going to use the lessons that we've learned from lockdown into meeting this, this, this next few weeks of, of what will be a crisis time for a lot of people? Yeah, so when, when I worked with women and children in refuge as well, we did see that lawlessness, you know, would not as well at Christmas and because women did try to hold it together, you know, and, and get Christmas over for the sake of the children of the family and then do something. We find the same with men, you know, over the Christmas period. Most of our calls to our helpline will be men who have no access to their children or who are being told, you know, that you're not going to see your children this Christmas and, you know, the suicide rates um, go through the roof at Christmas time. You know, it's a very, very difficult time already um, for anybody who's experiencing domestic abuse or anybody who's suffering from, you know, not being allowed to see their children or have their children used as a weapon against them. So a lot of our calls are around children and around how can I get to see my children 
the court, you know, can, if there's not going to be enough time, you know, if she breaches the, the access order in November, I'm not going to get into the courts again until February, March, whatever, and I'm not going to see my children over Christmas. We need supports in place that, you know, that, that everybody has equal access to their children around Christmas and obviously where it's safe and not, you know, where the, the access has been used as another form of abuse. But where it is, you know, where men are, should be able to see their children, we need to have that in place as well, you know, so that men aren't taking their lives over Christmas, you know, because they haven't seen their children. They're not being abused in that way as well. And it's a huge form of abuse for the men that we talk to. Um, so I do think that we need to have something in place for emergency access um, for the men who aren't getting to their children. You know, if there is a breach of an access that it can be enforced, I understand it's difficult for the guardian. They can't enforce the access because they're not going to turn up on Christmas Day and remove children screaming, crying from a house or whatever, you know. So it's, I think the work needs to do well before then, um, you know, in, in, in the same having something in place so that people can see their children and can have access. Normally then for the men um, that we work with who are in a home where there's domestic abuse and they're being abused, again, they will wait until after Christmas to do something about it. They will hold it together and say, look, we'll, we'll keep it together for the children, for the family, and then after Christmas I might try and find how I can go about getting an order. A lot of our calls are around, is there a refuge? Is there a safe bed? Is there somewhere I can go? Even if we get refuge at the moment for a man, we can't be with him within 24 hours. We need to have a space where if a guy contacts us today, we can get him in somewhere, you know, over tonight and be with him tomorrow. You know, we don't do that. If a guy is in Cork, Limerick, Galway, wherever he is, we can't do that. And we don't have the services in place around the country in order to do that, you know. So the whole system really needs to change in, in regards to domestic violence for everybody in regards to, you know, what what is used as a weapon and what is domestic violence, you know, where children are being used and they're not getting to see their dads and, you know, dads telling us they have children calling them on the phone, hiding in the kitchen saying, mom's upstairs, I just wanted to talk to you, you know, and I'm not allowed to normally talk to you. You know, so this stuff has to stop. We need to have proper structure in place. We need to have proper laws enforced for to, to, so that, if, you know, men and children get to see each other over these periods of time as well. Um, I think we face a very uncertain um, period approaching the Christmas period. I think that, um, as Andrea touched on, um, we tend to experience a, a holding period um, concerning our refuge accommodation. Nonetheless, we have families always with us over the Christmas period, but we go into a very, very intensely busy period in January uh, for reasons that relate to the, the holding that happens around Christmas. But Bigger for me would be, and, and where some of the lessons have to, to, to be enacted sooner rather than later, is looking at the issue of um, escalating violence within the home, and um, compounded isolation and loneliness, and the um, experience of uh, poverty, and um, reaching families uh, where concerns to experience abuse, withholding of maintenance, and um, issues that relate to the abuse and how, by virtue of that, you get disconnected from your family and friends and that network. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of things from a service point of view that we're going to be very much prioritising, which is how do we keep re regular contact with those um, that we have and, and are providing support to? How do we continue to bring services via interactive virtual means to ensure that if we are faced with a lockdown, that we can do that um, without having to rely on face-to-face? Um, I think we're very likely going to be going into another period where we have to source alternative accommodation and have access routes into that. But as Andrea had referenced, the rent supplement was something that we campaigned for tirelessly 
throughout the lockdown. And we were very proud that as a sector we made happen. Um, and that will see families get into accommodation and new accommodation quicker because of that um, that rent supplement uh, legislation. And and lastly, I think it is about making sure that we bring joy to families. And, you know, our services work really, really deliberately to ensure that we provide a way in which we deal with the trauma and the crisis, but we also reintroduce what fun and recreation and, and what a sense of and excitement looks like to be feeling uh, feelings of safety, of feelings of being able to tap into, you know, nurture, connection and contact with other people. So that's going to be a big priority for our service approach in the Christmas period. And I would hope that you would have adequate support from the Gardaí and from whatever minister will be in charge at Christmas time as well and, and the various support networks that we have. Um, where can people contact yourselves if they A, need support themselves or B, would like to make donations or would like to get involved with supporting the services that you run? So um, our helpline support, so for men or family members, and we do get a lot of sisters, brothers, fathers, mothers looking for um, support for their family member. So our helpline is 015543811. We have our email, which is hello at mensaid.ie. And if anybody wanted to make a donation, you can go to our website at www.mensaid.ie. We have access to our 24-hour helpline on 018670701. Uh, for anyone that wants to email us, they can email us at helpline at evenus.org. And uh, you can check out our website where you can make direct donations um, on www.evenus.ie. And really encourage, given social media being an access point for a lot of people, um, our Facebook, um, our Instagram, our Twitter, even our LinkedIn, as has been a recent um, uh, one for some people, um, make contact that way and we will get back to you as soon as we can. We also have through those mediums information around how hard of hearing and um, can access tech support to ensure that they have also access to ongoing provision and support throughout this, this lockdown. It's lovely to see such a variety of access points where people can can get get help where, where they are, you know, and, and like you said, if you're scrolling Instagram you know, it might be a bit easier to access your social media and, and, you know, get help that way. So that's that's lovely to see that. So thank you both so much for your, your time today. I really appreciate it. And I really hope that, you know, we, we've contributed to a deepening of that discussion around domestic violence and the different forms it takes and who's a, who can be a victim of it. Because, again, you know, our, our narratives sometimes on that needed a little bit of work as well. And I hope that people listening would, you know, reach out if they need help to, to your services. And, you know, like you said, no matter what time of day, there's always someone there ready and, and willing to listen and, and to be able to offer help and information. So um, thank you both so, so much for your time today. Thank you, Caroline. Thanks, thank Emma. Everyone. Thank you, Andrea. And thank Take you so care. much to my listeners. If you want to get involved with the conversation around the podcast, we're over on Twitter and it's the hashtag COVID care podcast. Um, you can feel free to rate and review the podcast on Apple. You can also find us on Spotify and we are part of the Tortoise Shack Network and you can find us there at tortoiseshack.ie. Thank you so much and I'll chat to you next week.